we'll pretty much be camping out in Luke 15 today. We'll pretty much be staying in Luke 15 the entire day. This is the beginning of a series we're calling The Prodigal God. It's called The Prodigal God. It's based on a book that we have in the library for you to check out if you'd like. It's a quick little read, not very long, lots of white space on the page. And uh, you can pretty much read it in one sitting if you'd like. Uh, It gives you a great context for where this parable happens and what's going on in Luke 15 here. Um, So I'd encourage you, if you haven't... uh, checked it out from the library, go ahead and go online or go to your local bookstore, and uh, you can probably get it at even uh, bookstores like Barnes & Noble in Johnson City. It's called The Prodigal God. We're going to kind of base our next five weeks on some of that structure in that book. It's all about Luke 15, what we commonly call the prodigal son. But what we want to do is talk about how God is prodigal. That word basically means luxuriously outpouring, uh, ridiculously gracious in the context of what we're talking about with God here. Gracious beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations about what we expect from a God who is perfect and holy. So that's why this series is called The Prodigal God. Let's go ahead and start looking in the context here. We're going to start in verses 1 to 3, where we talk about the context of Jesus' teaching here in the first three verses. The context is the unwilling listeners. The unwilling listeners. That's the first blank there in the handout, unwilling. Let me go ahead and refresh our memories here. Verses 1 to 3, follow along in your Bibles, if you would, please. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Then verse 3, So he told them this parable. There are two groups of people here that we see who are around Jesus. The tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees and the scribes. The tax collectors and the sinners, the supposed bad guys, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious establishment who felt themselves the good guys here. Now, one of the first things that we notice here in this text is that it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are offended. My version says that they grumbled. The version that uh, Trisha read said they muttered. It's like they were standing over in the corner listening to this, this guy teach and watching all these, 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 these scum sinners walk around and listen to Jesus and saying, Can you believe who he's talking to, and that he welcomes them. They're with themselves over in the corner, sort of muttering. Verse 1 sets the scene that tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear Jesus. You might as well have called them the scum. They were sort of the social lowlifes, whose very existence, at least according to the the good establishment here, whose very existence depends on using and abusing people. You see, that's their M.O. according to the religious types here. Their M.O. is that these, these tax collectors and these, these sinners are the people who don't care about God. And they don't care about God's ways. The religious group is especially offended that Jesus eats with sinners. It says, He receives them and eats with them. He welcomes them into His own home and He eats with them. Table fellowship at the time was considered a major sign of acceptance and friendship. So how in the world, these religious leaders thought, how in the world can this Jesus be so open to these sinners? 
Doesn't he realize that they're the bad people? That's kind of the context that's going on here. And apparently Jesus, <laughs> Jesus has been doing this before. Because his refutation here, as it says, is that he receives sinners and eats with them. Now notice in verse 3 that Jesus does not give a direct, a quick, an easy to digest kind of answer. Instead, he responds here with three stories, three parables. A parable is simply an extended metaphor. He, he responds to the grumbling of this, this religious establishment as they're over in the corner looking at Jesus. He responds with three parables, extended stories. And you need to realize that these three parables he tells were not just spoken out of a vacuum. The purpose of all three of these parables was very intentional. The purpose was to challenge the Pharisees' point of view. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He's confronting the Pharisees' worldview. So when we get to the final parable, the third one, which we'll look at later, we will realize that both these groups of people, the sinners as well as the religious people, are actually in that third parable. That's why it's the last one, the last one that we normally call the, the parable of the prodigal son. But that's going to come later. So for now, we're going to notice how he begins to challenge the Pharisees especially with these first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the coin. The first thing Jesus confronts here is their categories about sin. The first thing he confronts in these two parables is the religious leader's the established religious leaders' categories about what sin is. We see that in, in verses 4 to 5 and verse 8 here. Let's go ahead and read those again, verses 4 to 5 and 8. They say this, verse 4, this is Jesus talking, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Let's skip over there to verse 8. This is the second parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Jesus here is confronting their preconceived ideas about what sin is. You see, in the parable of the lost sheep, the shepherd goes out to find the sheep. Now, now a sheep is a rather, now that the kids for Christ kids are gone, a sheep is a rather dumb animal. We don't say the word dumb at the Wakefield house. We certainly don't say the word stupid, but, but sheep are, are kind of stupid. They're just kind of dumb animals. Because you see, sheep, when they're lost, they're helpless. When sheep are lost, they are completely helpless. There are numerous examples, in fact, of sheep who will be looking for food and stray off from the flock. And they get so lost and so distracted, so in their own little worlds, that they will literally walk off the cliff. These, these sheep get so distracted and so lost, they don't even know they're lost. In their own search for greener pastures, they meet their demise by walking off cliff. In the second parable, the lost coin is even more lost. I mean, a coin can't get up and walk. It's obviously more incapable of finding its way home. So the three lost objects in these parables here in Luke 15 
the sheep, the coin, and the son, they all represent people who are spiritually lost, far from God in their relationship with him. But they are lost in quite different kinds of ways. Think about this. The sheep is lost through its own foolishness in a way. The sheep is lost through its own foolishness. The coin is sort of lost through thoughtlessness or or carelessness on the part of the woman in the parable. And the son through willfulness. The son through willfulness. This This view that Jesus Christ is presenting here confronts their easy categories of sin. Because these religious leaders wanted to say, well, we know what sin is. That is sin. And you can tell because you just look at them and you know. Because here and this and this and this, and they, they weigh these people by their own categories of sin. Taken together, if you look at these, it's sort of a, a nuanced, a multidimensional view of what sin is. Let me give you an example. Let's say that Mr. Smith has a problem with abusive anger. He often flies off the handle, even abusive and sometimes physically so. So why does he do this? Why does, why does Mr. Smith respond in this way? Is his problem genetic? Is that anger a genetic thing? Is it a matter of brain chemistry? Is it just part of his inborn nature as, as the example of the sheep who kind of walked off the cliff? Well, science kind of says that's, yeah, part of it. Or is his problem the result of a bad environment? Perhaps Mr. Smith's abusive anger is the result of poor parenting and family life and the social structures within which he grew up. He learned that. He was mismanaged by his supervisors, whatever you want to call it. Is this anger something he learned from others? Well, yeah, it's definitely that too. Does his problem stem from selfishness and pride and those categories of sin And those vices that we talked about here in church, sure, absolutely. The problem here is that sin, friends, sin is so deeply complex. We've we've debated its nature in the church ever since we began. We're not going to debate the question here today. But suffice it to say that whether you believe in, in our categories that we often talk about, whatever you believe, whether it's inborn in us, as if it's biologically starting there, or if it's something that we learn as we grow up. It's probably more of an and instead of an or issue, by the way. Sin is so complex and so ingrained and so a part of us that sometimes we are like lost sheep and coins and we don't even know it. That's the sad truth of the application of this text today for us. We in the church are the sheepfold. We are aware. We are aware of those who don't even know that they're lost. We'll come back to that later. The problem of sin is something that that he is calling into question here. Suffice it to say that sin, wherever you think it came from, is yours and it's mine. We own it. We are responsible for it. Our rebellion, our fists in the air in rebellion at God is something that cannot be pawned off to someone else. And Jesus' view of sin here is that he's calling into question this religious establishment's view of sin. See, they want to count. They want to keep their own scales. They are sure, cocksure that they know exactly who is in and who is out. 
And so often we are like them in the church, apt to stand from afar, mutter in the corner, and decry the tax collectors and sinners. We like to set up our own standards for sin, for who's in and who's out. Churchgoers, friends, are some of the worst at this because we want our own scales, our own measures, so that we know what we call sin and what sins are worse than yours, what I can feel okay about, which ones you are involved in and I can rationalize away for me. Friends, whatever you want to call about the nature of it, sin is sin and it separates all of us from God and from each other. And the hogwash that there is something about how we can measure it and be sure what sin is and isn't. Friends, we are so hopelessly lost in our own sin in some ways that we are sometimes even ourselves unaware. The next thing that Jesus does in these next few verses is confront their categories about salvation. That's the next blank there in the outline is salvation. He confronts their categories about salvation. Verses 6 to 7 and 9 to 10 is where we'll read here next. Verses 6 and 7 first, and then 9 and 10. Let's read together. When he comes home, he calls together his friends. This, again, is the, uh, the shepherd. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verses 9 and 10 here. When she has found it, that is the woman who has lost the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. In this context here, these, these first two parables, they implore us to ask this question. To what extent are we like that woman and that shepherd who seek for the lost? We'll come back to that, but let's first talk about Jesus confronting their categories about salvation. Most people think of religion as our humanity, our humanity's search for God. We like to think of ourselves as spiritual seekers, as honest inquirers. We look at the religious uh, viewpoint in the world, and we say that uh, while, while some religions... Uh, have, have this idea that there's a God. None of these religions have an idea that God comes to us. That's the prodigal God. The prodigal God is the idea that God gives himself to us. The problem with that, the, the problem with the religions of the world, which are the opposite, which say that humanity searches for God, is that what we do is we set up scales for ourselves where we can say who's in and who's out. But the New Testament turns this idea on its head. Think about this in the parable here. The shepherd, who Jesus obviously identifies with, must go out and seek to save that which is lost. The coin cannot search, as we obviously noted before. The coin cannot search and find its owner. The owner must find the coin. These, these categories of sin and salvation that Jesus is confronting may, must make us ask this question. Does our ministry, does First Christian Church, do our lives, our programming, our ministries, our activities, does our ministry welcome or receive the lost sheep that are all around us? These two parables implore us to ask, 
more than anything else, the question about whether or not what we do here seeks, welcomes, receives sinners. I want to ask you to ask yourself these questions. Do I get up in the morning wondering about how I can bring the love of God to people who have learned to despise themselves, for example? Do I wake up in the morning thinking about how I'm going to use my day to seek after lost sheep and lost coins? When you come to this ministry, when you're a part of what we do at First Christian Church, is your question, what we do here, does it seek to save the lost? Do we travel through our days wondering how we can bring hope to people who have given up? Sometimes for us in the American church, I'm afraid the honest answer is, what does it for us to... Uh, to welcome and receive sinners. Do we do that? The answer, unfortunately, sometimes is no. I don't think we do that very well. I'd like to just call it as it is. There are lots of reasons for why the answer sometimes is no. We don't have the time to hash all that out. And I'm not particularly interested in all the reasons. But I want to ask the question, what does it mean for you and me to welcome and receive sinners? Jesus confronted the religious establishment. How does he confront us? Does it mean that we, on Sunday mornings, are content with feeling like we receive sinners if we shake someone's hand and smile on Sunday mornings? Is that what it means to welcome and receive sinners? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm glad we shake each other's hands. I'm glad we smile. We want to be welcoming. We have ushers and greeters who, who volunteer in those kinds of places. But is that what Jesus means by welcoming and receiving sinners when we look at the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin? In Jesus' terms here, what it means to welcome and receive sinners is to leave the 99 and to go look for the one. It means to turn over the sheets and the mattresses, to peek under the sofas, and to go find some coins. But I'm afraid that oftentimes we rather are content to wait here in this space until those people coming here can realize that they are welcome. Friends, if we are going to be who God called us to be, that must change. There are three reasons, I think, that we don't seek the lost, as we're called. Three reasons, I think, that we are uh, much less about seeking coins and much more about passively receiving and welcoming. The first is that we are afraid, I think. Sometimes I think we're afraid. Are we afraid to go out looking for coins? Afraid that we will get hurt somehow? Maybe afraid that someone or the world will ridicule us? Maybe, I think, we are afraid of losing what we have here. We have a good church. We have good people. We love one another. We worship. We do lots of things well. I've noticed that one of the difficulties 
And being a church that goes out looking for lost sheep and for lost coins, for example, is that the youth group gets a little rougher. And suddenly the decent folks aren't sure if they should send their kids to be, some, to be with some of those youth. Any parent who has faced that kind of question knows how torn we can be in those kinds of circumstances. We want to train our children in the ways of Jesus, but we don't want to expose them to the bad kids. I know that fear. I'm not judging you. But we have to decide what we value about the ministry of Jesus. Do we value looking respectable, maintaining our human-centered scales of dignity, or do we value God's passion for the lost? If it's an or question, the answer is obvious. Maybe we are a fraud. Maybe we're not just afraid, but maybe we're a fraud. Maybe we're not passionate about reaching the lost because we're concerned that you and I, we aren't the real deal. We don't know enough yet. We don't have all the answers. We're not together enough. Maybe we're afraid like the imperfect church that we are, that, we'll, that we're kind of a squabbling couple trying to give marriage advice to other people. That's a real danger. It shouldn't be taken lightly. But if you're not reaching out to the lost because you're afraid that you're the lost one, well, kudos to you in the first place for realizing the difficulty of our human position. We all feel like works in progress. We all feel like we have far to go if we are to become who God wants us to be. Don't worry about that. Do what you can. Don't be surprised, by the way, if in the process of reaching out to the lost, you begin to overcome your fraudulent attempts to become who God wants you to be. The only difference between the Pharisee and the prostitute is that the prostitute knew she needed saving. Don't let the potential of being charged with being a hypocrite deter you from standing for what is right. Instead, stand humbly for the ways of God. The third way, I think, for us that uh, deters us from looking for the lost and for lost coins and sheep is being affluent. Sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we're a fraud. Sometimes it's affluence. And I think for us, we all fall in this category. Whether you think you do or not, we all have plenty to eat. We're going to walk out that door and have a good meal to eat for lunch. We're going to have a good, clean, and secure and safe place to sleep tonight. We're all going to have plenty of clothing. We are all affluent. We have so much to lose in a way. We have to work hard to keep our jobs. If we lose our job, we lose our house. If we lose our house, the other dominoes fall. Many of us work hard not just to keep the house, but to keep the stuff in our house. And not just to keep our houses, but our vacations our swag, maybe if we American affluent Christians dial back some on our work or our hobbies or our small circle of comfortable relationships, then maybe we could make time to seek the lost. So the question of the day is, do we welcome sinners? Do we receive sinners? Not as a passive but like Jesus Christ demonstrates in these parables as an active activity. Do we welcome sinners? The answer for many of us is kind of, kind of, as long as I don't lose anything in the process, as long as it's on my terms. I want to tell you a story about a woman named Kathy. 
She was a successful stockbroker in Minneapolis. Kathy very easily made friends, and she had the gift of evangelism, you would say. She used to go to the pool at her apartment complex, settle on a chaise lounge, read a book, strike up a conversation with somebody who came by. Soon, the two would become friends, and Kathy would begin talking very comfortably with this person about her Christian faith. Bringing newcomers to church was Kathy's regular practice. She was so good at this that she was invited to serve on the church evangelism team. Well, when Kathy asked her pastor, her preacher, what she thought about the idea, he said this, Kathy, I think it sounds ridiculous that you should be asked to be on the evangelism team. Why would we put somebody who is so good at evangelism in a room for hours with people who are already Christians? And he said this very telling thing. Let someone else serve on the evangelism board while you go sit out by the pool. Friends, please get out of here and start sitting by the pool. Go take a novel, sit at the pool or the coffee shop or the wherever so that you can be interrupted by a divine appointment with somebody who needs to know Jesus. Buy your $10 FCC coffee mug, get your 10% off, and go talk to someone who needs to know the Lord. Statistics demonstrate something incredibly sad about the American church. That your typical churchgoer will go their entire lives in church and be personally responsible for bringing no one to Christ on average. Various people say different things, but it's something like 5 to 10% of American Christians will be personally responsible for not just bringing somebody to Christ, but for bringing somebody to church in the last 10 years. I, I read these parables and I think, how is that possible? May we never become the kind of place where we don't search for lost coins and sheep. Whatever the reasons, whatever, whatever the things we're scared about, whatever the reasons for us feeling inappropriately equipped or unable to talk to people about the work of God in our life, we must, we must, we must not fall into the trap that welcoming and receiving sinners means they come to us. It never has meant that. Jesus left the 99 to save the one. He turned over the mattresses and the sofas to find the lost coin. And you and I, every single one of us, was that sheep or that coin. And friends, if we believe what we say we do, how can we ever be content for us to create a place where we're not seeking out those people with our lives, with our resources, with our time? May we become the kind of place where we seek and save those who are lost. Let's pray. Father, we are in our own ways, so many of us, 
ill-equipped, scared, sometimes too distracted to be about the things that break your heart. And so we repent from that. We know, Lord, that we all, (laughs) we all have gone astray. Those of us in the sheepfold realize, Father, that we become so distracted and so easily about our own our own priorities. Father, we just humbly ask that you would make of us a congregation that cares about those who don't know you. Refresh our hearts through your spirit. Remind us of what it's like to not know you. Remind us of the lostness that we once knew so that the joy that we experience because you came to seek and to save us would be the place from which we speak to others about who you are. Father, renew in us that joy of being found. Renew in us in this worship service the joy of knowing you so that we would seek and save those who are lost. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.